this should help explain why you have seen Christians do and act crazy. Um, do and act things that you would have thought professing Christians shouldn't do, or people in the church shouldn't do. This explains why the church, no doubt, has been labeled as hypocritical. Uh, and, and some of that is for good reason. Um, this passage is about the struggle with sin in the life of a Christian. So um, let me pray for us, because it's a, it's a wonderful passage. There's tremendous comfort in here. Um, but it's a good and kind of heart-wrenching one, too. So let me pray for us before we get going. God, I do ask that you would come and, and visit us in a special way as we are kind of forced to, to grapple with the realities of our own heart, um, the things in there that we really, really, really want to keep kind of hidden and, and out of the light. And yet we know that those things that are in the closet hidden control us in so many ways. And we live trying to avoid them or keep them from coming up, and in so doing, they have us enslaved. So would you begin that, that work of freeing us from it? Father, some of us are yours. We're your children, and, and we need your Spirit to continue his work in our lives to, to free us from um, the patterns of who we used to be. And some of us in here don't yet know you, and so we pray that you would give us eyes to see what this means. Um, for those of us in here who are lonely, we pray that you would meet us and that you would begin to, to, to craft um, relationships around us through people we may not even know yet. For those of us in here who are just downright disturbed with what we know to be true about our heart, we pray that you would meet us and speak grace to us. And for those of us in here who think we're fine, we pray that you would unsettle us for our good and for your glory. We love you and, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So um, I love being an RUF campus minister. It's my seventh year here at TU. Um, before that, I was an intern at Vanderbilt University uh, for a few years with RUF. While I was in seminary, I helped out with RUF at Davidson, which was um, just next to Charlotte where I was in seminary and where Zach Marty is from. And um, uh, But RUF is a big deal to me, and it really... It, through RUF, it, as a student at OU, the Lord began to grab my heart in a way that just hadn't been true to that point. And uh, one of the ways that that happened and that the Lord really used RUF and continues to use it even now that I'm working for it, um, one of the ways he used that in my life is he began to show me through Scripture that struggling as a Christian is the norm. That struggle in the Christian life is not some aberration. It's not what just like the worst kind of Christians do. Really struggling with real sin in the life of a Christian is really the only Christian life there is. And one of the things I love about being with RUF is we get to go uh, twice a year. Um, all the campus ministers and the interns do it kind of together with us in July, but do their own thing that Carrie and Joey were at last week. But I get to go with all the other campus ministers in July and then again in December. And we just sit around and we talk about ministry and what it's like and kind of the nuances of, of being a pastor and the expectations and lots of different things. And, um, but really it's a time where we get together and we talk about the particular struggles of our own hearts. And, and a lot of times th- those are struggles with belief. Man, I'm standing up there telling people all this stuff that they should believe, and it's true. But sometimes I don't feel like it's true. And sometimes I don't think it's true, and, and what do we do with that? Or, man, I, I'm up there like, calling people to walk away from their sin and walk toward uh, holiness. And yet I know that sometimes on the inside of my own heart, like, that's not true. And I'm walking toward sin and away from holiness. Um, and so we get together and we, and we talk and we pray for one another. And they call it training. Training, Like most corporate world training, you're going to get new skills and like, hey, go be a better this. Like with pastors, you come together and like you talk about your sin and how you and you pray for one another and you kind of just urge each other along in the battle. And in this passage tonight, Paul is giving us training for the Christian life. He is giving us some tools. He is trying to equip us for every single day ahead in your life as a Christian, or any future day that may be in front of you uh, if you become a Christian. Paul is trying to help calibrate in our hearts and minds what we are to expect in this journey. So in chapter 7, he's doing that for us. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 7, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. And um, it gets a little dizzying in here, and you'll know what I mean. Let's give it a shot. He starts out, What shall we say, then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. 
It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Don't you just want him to end at verse 24? Or sorry, verse 25. But then he goes on and he just says the struggle is still there. It's still there. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's look at it together. The three categories I want us to consider tonight uh, in this are, one, the first, uh, the law and our struggle. Second, the flesh and our struggle. Third, the Savior and our struggle. First right there, the law and our struggle. Um, Look, the word law or commandment is in these 19 verses 21 times. 21 times. Now, math majors out there, that is a little over one time per verse. Per verse. Each verse. Sorry. I get in my own head on this stuff. Um, That is all the time. The word law or commandment is all over this passage. So we would do well to kind of pause for just a second and say, what is he talking about? What is he talking about when he uses the word law? Uh, I'm going to give my thanks to Tim Keller on this uh, point because he helped me to understand that Paul is actually, when he says the word law in this passage... He's using it three different ways. And if you don't know what what law means, that's fine. I'm about to tell you. It's used three different ways, and that's why it's so confusing. So the first way that Paul uses it right there, uses it, is up on the screen. Look at verse 21 in your passage. Um, He uses it here to kind of denote a general principle. And he says this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And what he means is uh, that there's this general principle, the more I try and do what's good, the more, like, I actually end up doing what's evil, or the more temptation is present. Let me tell you how this works. Um, When I was 24, 25 years old, um, when I was an intern with RUF at Vanderbilt, my world came crashing down. Some of you all know this about me. You've heard me talk about this before. My world came crashing down in a lot of ways. Uh, relationally, kind of existentially, I, I really was losing grip on who I was. And a huge part of that was because I had just a deep-seated, um, I would call it an addiction with porn, with pornography. I had for 15 years, and it had its, it had its reach in all areas of my life, down to the core of who I was. And it had me. It absolutely had me. 
And when I was about that age, um, through a long series of events, I'm not ashamed to tell you about it, I just don't want to take all the time right now, um, I began to take that very seriously. And what I noticed during that period of really, really, really having to wrestle with this at a deep level in counseling and the whole deal was that the more I tried to push back on it, the more it felt like it was growing. The temptation, the desires to give back in, sometimes the giving back in, it just felt like I was standing trying to hold the floodwaters back and there was a thunderstorm on the other side just dumping rain and it felt like the wave was coming over me. Paul's saying that that he found it to be true, a truism, that when he tried to wrestle with sin, that it felt like it was just coming in harder on him. Now, if you've ever actually tried to wrestle with a particular sin or an area in your life that you've wanted to change, you know what this feels like. That it just feels unbelievably hard to actually get a foothold and to take the next step or to take the first step. It's just like... Oh my gosh, I don't think I can do this. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the first way he uses this idea of law. The second way he uses it is that it's like a force or a power. In verse 23, look down there. He says, um, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he's he's kind of talking about this power. So we could say, uh, just insert the word power there. But I see in my members another power waging war against the power of my mind and making me captive to the power of sin. He's saying that law can be like this, this force out there that's moving against us. So in verse 25 it says, So then I myself serve the the law of God with my mind. And this is where we pick up on this passage. He's like, you can tell Paul is really wrestling with it. He's like, I know the thing that I should do. But like I keep doing this other thing. That there's this power that almost seems like it's, it's from within, but it's also outside of me. It's moving me away from the thing I should do. But the third way that Paul uses the law here is where I'm going to camp out for just a minute. This third way that he uses law here is he's actually talking about the law of God or, or what the Bible elsewhere might call the Ten Commandments or the moral law. Okay? Uh, and there's a lot of verses there that, that talk about it, and I put them in the parentheses for you. Um, what is this law of God? Well, it's not the ceremonial laws and the sacrifices and you can't eat this thing and you must eat this thing and don't touch that dead thing and, you know, go do all these things. It's not the purity laws in the Old Testament that Jews had to follow. This is the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt, uh, you shall honor your father and mother. Take Sabbath. All these things you could look at in Exodus 20 that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5 through 7. It's the moral law. Some of those things, the sacrifices, ceremonial stuff, that stuff is gone. That stuff is gone because Jesus came. The moral law stays. Jesus affirms it. And the rest of the New Testament is saying, yes, this is still very much alive. So um, in these laws, God is revealing his character, what he is like, and how it is that God desires for humanity to live. Okay? And that makes sense. That you're not supposed to steal because it's not yours, and that that hurts other people. You're not supposed to commit adultery because that person is not yours. Um, You're supposed to honor God because he should be honored. So it's love of God, love of neighbor. 
That's what's going on in the Ten Commandments. So look right there at the very first verse um, in verse 7. Paul, just right out of the gate, says that the law is good. And he's talking about the law of God. He's saying, look, that moral law, that's good. That is a good thing. In and of itself, it is good. But in order for us to understand how it's good and what the function of that is, other than just like seeing it as a piece of art hanging and be like, man, that would be awesome if everybody did that. Uh, or putting it maybe even a little more appropriately or uh, uh, like on the capital. Right? Oklahoma is in a huge legal brouhaha about whether or not to have the Ten Commandments of the Capitol. Right? It's, it's just kind of this vague idea that if they're there, just sitting there, then I guess by walking by them, you'll just like get them on you and start doing them. I don't know. Like It's symbolic. I get it. But, but what else are the Ten Commandments for? And Paul uses them in two ways uh, right here. First is that the Ten Commandments define sin for us. Now hang with me, I know it's kind of a little chunky here at the first. We're going to make sense of all this. The moral law defines sin for us. What do I mean? Verse 7, he said, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. What he's saying is that the Ten Commandments come along and all of a sudden there's a standard there. And Paul was saying, look, I didn't even know what coveting was. I didn't know that I wasn't really supposed to covet until I'm looking and seeing that, oh, coveting is not good. Then I shouldn't covet. It's in the presence of a standard that we see that we've fallen short of a standard. Right? If there's 100% as the standard on your, on your test that you need to get, then when you make not 100%, you've fallen short of the standard. Sin, or the Ten Commandments define what sin is, just as a test defines what your grade is. Secondly, though, that it reveals sin in us. So it reveals a standard out there and defines sin for us, but it also reveals sin in us. Let's see how this works, verse 8. He says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So, what Paul's saying is, yeah, no, I I was coveting things before, but I didn't know that it was coveting until until I saw that I shouldn't covet. But then when I saw that, it's almost like, the my eyes were open and I began to see, oh, this is all over the place. This is all over the place inside of me. Um, and when he says that sin was dead in me, this is kind of like how you and I use the phrase, uh, sometimes you're joking with someone and you'll say like, oh, you're dead to me. You know, and, and, you're, and you laugh or whatever. You don't actually mean that. Um, but like, you don't mean anything to me. That thing you said, it doesn't bother me. Sin lies dead in us. It doesn't bother us until we see, until it's aggravated. Until I realize, oh, I shouldn't do that, and now all I want to do is that. Um, I don't know about y'all, but this explains much of my childhood. (laughs) You know, parents say, hey, don't go do that thing. For me, it was chase your brother around the house with a knife or uh, jump off the roof onto the trampoline because there's a broken arm on the other side of that. Like, crazy kid stuff. Um, And bizarre kid stuff. The knife is a true story. Um, You know, but like them telling me not to do it made me want to do it. 
Have you all ever done that? Like, is that true of you? That seeing that something's illegal, whether it be alcohol or drugs or whatever that thing is, like, there's part of it's just like, ah, yeah, that kind of adds to the intrigue of it. Just the forbiddenness of it, the forbidden fruit, we want to go for that. Some of y'all do that with relationships. You know who you are. Um, it's just like, ah, I shouldn't do that, but, it's, but I want it. Paul's saying that's what sin does. It, seeing the commandments, it reveals something about my heart that I actually just love to sin because sometimes sin is fun. It is. And some of y'all um, have been told your whole life, maybe you grew up in the church and, and you're taught that sin is bad and it's terrible, and then you come to college and you're like, uh, but awesome and really fun, and um, it makes me not lonely when I can go do that. Um, but see, sin is fun. It's just short-lived. It's as advertised. It is a good time for a little while. But in the end, it leaves you wanting and still having to either feed it more or look for something else to satisfy you. So that's what Paul's talking about. Um, from time to time, I'll, uh, I'll hear people talk about coming around RUF or coming around the church or around Christians, and, and they'll kind of say, man, I don't know, I, I don't really like it that much because when I'm there, I feel guilty. Or I feel like people are judging me. Or I, I feel like, you know, I just kind of walk away feeling bad about myself. And there's that knee-jerk part of me that wants to be like, no, 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 you missed it, that's not what we're about. And I try to, like, you know, backpedal. But really, there is an aspect of if you come around the Bible and if you hear the Bible's teachings or if you are around Christians who are trying to, like, actually push back on sin in some ways, that, that if that's not true of you or you're just kind of doing whatever you want, then you might actually be feeling your sin in a healthy way. Um, maybe every time you feel bad about something, it's not bad. Like, it's actually a good thing that you're actually feeling bad about something. Maybe God is actually using those people or that church or this group or whatever it is to, to awaken something in you that, man, the sin really is at work in you. Maybe it has you. Um, Brene Brown, who's a professor down at University of Houston, has kind of been all the rage these last few years on her research into the issues of shame and vulnerability and, and kind of how to walk in freedom through that stuff. She may be a believer, may not, it doesn't really matter, but um, she, she gives this statement during one of uh, her TED Talks on this. She talks about uh, going back to church after she went through a divorce, and she says this, um, church wasn't an epidural. It was a midwife. It just stood next to me and said, push, it's supposed to hurt. You get what she's saying? That we oftentimes think of religion or Christianity or whatever thing you're chasing as like coming to soothe the pain. But there is an aspect of it that may increase the pain. Because it exposes sin. That's what happens when you're around the law. And we hate that. Because as a culture, as a people, if you'll allow me to jump in the boat with you about 13 years ago, um, we are allergic. We are allergic to feeling bad. We hate it. Like, hate it, hate it, hate it. 
And we will do anything we can. We will eat ice cream. We will go drink more coffee. We will go buy stuff. We will go plan a party. We will go drink stuff. We will go do anything to not feel bad. And honestly, I wonder if we're not short-circuiting some of God's work in our lives. Can we listen to that, that guilt? Can we listen to that sense of, ugh, maybe I'm not who I'm supposed to be? And ask God, like, man, what are you trying to tell me in there? What is this about? And what it's showing us through all of this, and what Paul's saying, is the law can't save us. It was never supposed to. But it can show you that you need to be saved, that you need a Savior. You need something outside of your abilities to come in and change you. So that is the law in our struggle. That's what he's doing. This gets a lot more practical right now, the flesh in the struggle. So when Paul talks about the flesh, and when you see him going back and forth in this, this is what he's saying. That last week in Romans 6, Paul talks about there's an old you that died at the cross of Jesus, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian. The old you died, you are a new person. And so when Paul talks about the flesh or this old him, uh, old person that's still living, he's talking about like the residue of the old self, that the old sin patterns and the habits and the way of thinking that just doesn't go away instantaneously. It's still there. And it, in many ways, will be there for a long time. I don't know how long, hopefully not as long as it's been in my life for some things. But, you know, I hope that you understand that Paul's saying this old self is not who I most am. I'm a new person now. And so what he's doing is he's saying, um, you know, I, didn't, I don't always feel like a Christian. My life doesn't always look like a Christian. And that's true of me, and I'm sure it's true of you. And it's maybe worse if you go on the inside. Then it really doesn't look like a Christian sometimes. And Paul helps us through this in saying that makes you normal in these three ways. Verses 7 through 13, he says... Um, He's talking about sin in the law. He's using all these past tense things. Like, this used to be true of me. Sin produced in me all these things, and and I was dead, all past tense. But in verse 14, look right there, it all goes present tense. So Paul, as a Christian, as an apostle who's writing this, he's saying, this is my life right now. I keep doing these things I don't want to do. That's how we feel. A second way that Paul is evidencing this struggle with the flesh is he talks about actually delighting in God's law. We know Paul's a Christian because in verse 22 he says, I delight in the law of God. Now, what does this mean? This means that Paul actually looks at the Bible. I'm not saying always, we don't know, but kind of fundamentally he looks at God's law and he says, that's beautiful. I want to do that. If my life looked like that, if I could live that way, then, man, things would be a lot easier, and God would be glorified. He delights in the law of God. Look, someone who's not a Christian doesn't necessarily look at the Ten Commandments and be like, that's awesome, I want to do that. Now, if you find that to be true of yourself, maybe you're becoming a Christian, because it's just categorically not true. People want to be a law unto themselves until they see that there's a better law for themselves. The third way that Paul talks about this struggle with flesh, and the way that we know this is normal, is if there is a struggle at all. 
That may sound very obvious. Here's what I mean. Christians are people who struggle. If you're not struggling with sin, you are not a Christian. You may think you are a Christian. If you are not actually wrestling with ugly things in your life and in your heart, I hope I'm not the first person to tell you, but I'm, I'll be the one to tell you, you are not a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and you are seeing things about yourself. Some of them are more publicly kind of ugly and heinous than others. Some of them may just be these very well-kept secrets that only you know about. But if you are not wrestling with the stuff of your life, you're not a Christian. And I don't mean that to be mean. I'm just trying to help you gauge what's true of you. So as Paul enters in here, he's saying struggle is real. It's happening all the time. And he doesn't like it. But it's there. I heard another pastor kind of illustrate it this way, and I'm just going to take it from him. Um, he, he said, it, it, when... When you talk to someone who, is, who knows anything about freezing or bitter cold temperatures, they say that in the process of freezing, right, you're cold, you're cold, you're cold, you're cold, then you get numb, and then there's the thing that you absolutely must strive in everything and every part of your being to avoid, and that's when you start to feel warm again, that it happens right before you die, that there's just kind of easing into eventual death. Uh, Jack London, who writes a number of stories, he writes a short story called um, To Build a Fire. Any of you all read that? Great. I'm going to read part of it for us. It, um, he says this. Mm-hmm. Where does it start? Then the man drowsed off into what seemed to him the most comfortable and satisfying sleep he had ever known. The dog sat facing him and waiting. The brief day drew to a close in a long, slow twilight. There was no signs of a fire to be made. And besides, never in the dog's experience had it known a man to sit like that in the snow and make no fire. As the twilight drew on, its eager yearning for the fire mastered it, and with a great lifting and shifting of forefeet, it whimpered softly and flattened its ears down in anticipation of being chidden by the man. But the man remained silent. Later the dog whined loudly, and still later it crept close to the man and caught the scent of death. This made the animal bristle and back away. Friends, if you have warmed up to sin in your life, if you no longer feel its sting, then you should be on alert. Or maybe that's been your whole life. I want to put you on alert in the best kind of way that I can. Conversely, think about having the flu. If you have the flu, it's miserable. You have no energy, your body aches. I mean, just life sucks. Like, it's the worst. But the worst part of the flu is the fever. Let's all be honest. It's the chills, like uncontrollable because your, your body is hot, but it's making you think that you're cold. But look, the very presence of all these symptoms, what a fever is telling you and is telling your body is that it is fighting an infection, that there is bacteria present or a virus present, so your body reacts to that and starts working. So if you, like, feel some sort of uncomfortableness in your life, that is actually present, that's actually evidence that the Holy Spirit is present in you and He's doing something. It's not that you're about to die. Now, you can, every analogy has its limits. You can die from the flu. But like, 
if you manage it and if you work through it and take the medicine and all that, like, it shows you that you're going to be healthy again. Same way in the Christian life. The evidence of the struggle is a sign of life. Sometimes we delight in God's law. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we kind of have this feeling of, I'm a train wreck. I'm such a joke. Look at Paul when he gets to verse 24. He's just gone through this back and forth, dizzying. He gets to 24 and he says, wretched man that I am. You ever felt that way? Probably not the words you used, but you ever just kind of looked at your life and after you'd done that thing for the 9,000th time that you told God or yourself you'd never do again, you're just like, I, I'm pathetic. I'm a joke. I'll never be different. That's what Paul's saying. And he goes on to say, basically, what hope is there for me now? Who will rescue me from this body of death? And he's not being dramatic. He is being serious. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's just sit for a moment and realize what he's saying. He's saying, I am struggling. My life is characterized by struggle. Who will rescue me from the struggle? Jesus. He doesn't say that Jesus is going to come and make him strong and then he's going to rescue himself. He says, thanks be to God, Jesus. So friends, here's what that means. It means that if you're a Christian, Jesus is the way you became a Christian. His death was effectual for your sins and His atonement covered them and you get His righteousness. You are a Christian. God loves you. You're a child adopted into His family. And that means if you're a Christian, the way that you change and wrestle and battle with sin is Jesus. It is At no point do you move on from Jesus. You keep turning to Him. You keep asking Him to change you. You keep wrestling with your sin, yes, because Jesus is wrestling with your sin in you by His Spirit. We don't ever graduate from Jesus. He isn't like the ABCs that get us in the door and now we take over. The Bible says no, no way. That would be the worst thing ever. Jesus is the means by which we are not just justified, but sanctified. Jesus is the way that we change. If you're not a Christian, three applications real quick. If you're not a Christian, let me just say this to you. This is why Christians have treated you and others very terribly. This is why Christians do embarrassing things to get on TV. It's because real Christians have real sin still. And I'm sorry for the way the church has hurt you. I really, I'm sorry for the way you've been treated on behalf of all Christians. But might this be an on-ramp for you? That you could look at your own life and say, Huh. Well, if they're not perfect, I know I'm not perfect. Maybe I could belong there. If you are a professing Christian tonight, but you've never felt the chill in your heart because of the presence of sin, I don't want to shame you, I'm not trying to call you out, but I really want to urge you to go pray to God and ask Him to, to reveal your sin to you. Or maybe go and read Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and listen to Jesus talk about the law and how it's not just committing adultery by going and having intercourse with someone. It is every time you lust after someone, you're breaking God's law. 
Every time you want something that's not yours, you're breaking His law. Every time you live for something other than Him, you're breaking His law. Like, you need to see that it's not just small, petty theft and the bad sexual stuff. It's just all kinds of stuff. And let that drive you to Jesus. If you are a sin, professing, sorry, if you are a professing Christian who is, who feels the warmth of sin coming over you and you're getting accustomed to it and you kind of like the pattern that you're in, you of all of us should be very, very much aware of what's happening. You are dying. And there's a part of your heart that is being deadened to this. Wake up. Pray to God. Beg Him to give you feeling in your soul. And lastly, if you are a professing Christian who is really, truly struggling with sin in very real and very hard ways, don't give up. He is fighting in you. He is fighting for you. Rest in His work. Join Him what He is doing. Join a small group. Find Christian friends. Go to church. Do everything you can. But know this. Jesus is what you need. Turn to Him again if you've been trying to do it on your own. Turn to Him. Rely on Him. Feed on Him. And get well soon. And then one day you'll be well forever. Because the sickness doesn't last a lifetime. It will last only for a short while. And our true lifetime will be without sickness forever. Let's pray together.